Well, good morning. Turn with me, if you would, in your own copies of God's Word or in the bulletin or in the Pew Bible in front of you to Romans chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it should be on page 939. In Romans 1 this morning, I'm going to start the reading in verse 13. I will read down to verse 17. Before I do, let's, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the precious treasure that is the message of the gospel that you have entrusted to us. We pray that you would teach us and train us to turn and entrust it to others, those in our family, those in our own church, and those beyond these walls. We pray, Lord, that you would open and soften our hearts, that we may be encouraged by these encouraging words this morning. Thank you for this sweet message in the book of Romans that you've given us. May it pierce us today. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Hear now God's word from the book of Romans, chapter 1, 13 to 17. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This phrase there, preach the gospel, it's one word. It's the word that we get evangelize. From. Paul says, I want to come and evangelize to you who are in Rome. For, he continues, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you were to look at the text this morning, if you are looking at it in a copy of the Bible rather than in the bulletin, one of the first things that you might notice is that our text crosses over one of those bolded headings. I I don't point that out this morning uh, to to say that we've gotten this wrong. I actually think it's a, a pretty good division. Verses 13, 14, and 15, they they end, they round out the initial thanksgiving section and greeting section of Paul's letter. And then then in verses 1, verse 116 begins that the exposition of the gospel that runs, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, all the way through chapter 11. And then it's applied to the Roman congregation in chapters 12 
to the middle of chapter 15. And if you were to go back to the end of the book and see the end of chapter 15 and chapter 16, you would see that it starts to sound like a letter again. Paul is greeting people. He's letting them know what's going on in his ministry. He's giving them instructions and he's, he's signing off. And here in the first few verses above what we, what we read in the, in the bulletin in chapter 1, he gives us greeting, tells us what his calling is, and gives the thanksgiving that we're familiar with from his other letters. And then in verse 16, he, he takes off to these, these glorious gospel passages in Romans with which we're so familiar. Today's sermon uh, could be boiled down to asking this simple question. We're going to ask about the relationship between the, the letter parts of Romans and the, the middle theological treatise part of, of Romans, the letter and, and the argument. How do they fit together? There was so much depth in this book, as you know, that um, some men, for instance, uh, John Piper, took 224 sermons to preach through it in uh, over about eight years. <laughs> Imagine sitting through that sermon series. Or uh, even more than that, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 372 sermons, over 12 years in the book of Romans. Uh, we, we only have one sermon <laughs> and one Sunday to consider this book. So that is why I thought we should consider what the book is doing as a whole. In other words, what is the point to all of the depth? Why does Paul put such depth into a letter? Let's start this morning by answering first this question. Why did Paul write a letter in the first place? Why is Paul writing to Rome? There's a lot we could say, but at one basic level, I think it's just this. And he, he tells us explicitly later on. Um, the reason he is writing to Rome is to tell them that he's coming and that he's not staying. That he's coming and he's not staying. And the reason why he dives so deep into the gospel in 116 through chapter 11. In order, the reason why he does that in order to say that he's coming and, and not staying is that he wanted the Romans to get eager about Paul's mission. He gives them the gospel in part to get them on board with what he's about so that they will be an excited and an eager launching pad for his mission to the rest of Europe. Later today, we will come back to consider what this means for us. But first, I would like to work through the text in this way. I'd like to look at three ways that Paul describes himself in these verses. These are, these are three things that Paul says are true about himself. And, and I would suggest that instead of just glancing past these things, 
in order to get to the meat of, of Romans, we slow down and realize that these identifications that Paul gives are in one way what Romans is, is all about. And in a way, this letter is an invitation written to Rome and written to you, an invitation to, to join in describing ourselves in these ways. So here are the three things. In verse 14, Paul says that he is obligated. In verse 15, Paul says he is eager. And in verse 16, Paul says he is not ashamed. He is obligated, he is eager, and he is proud. So consider the first one with me, obligated. Is it a strange thing for Paul to say? He's, he's under obligation. What does that mean? <clears throat> under obligation to Greeks and barbarians. When did Paul sign a contract with a barbarian? Uh, what did they give to Paul that now Paul owes them back or something? Um, now, the, the word barbarian here, as a note, it does not refer to um, what you might think of as cavemen or uncivilized people who live out in the woods. Uh, this is just the, the word that we use to translate the, the, the Greek word that refers to all of the people who don't speak Greek. So in a way, this refers to everybody in the world, Greek speakers and non-Greek speakers. But you are right to think that, that there's a sort of snobbery perhaps involved here so that as Paul writes to Rome, he's writing to people who might otherwise be tempted to look down their noses as the, at these barbarians as, as people either irrelevant or just for one reason or another not worth their time because they're unwilling to conform to the mainstream, to the lingua franca, to Greek. In any case, what does Paul owe such people? such that he is a debtor to every person in the world. Before we answer that, consider that Paul says you too are debtors. In Romans 8, Paul writes that we are all debtors, not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. And it's that word, debtors, in Romans 8, that is the same word here that the ESV translates under obligation. God's gift in the gospel, Paul's point is, puts us into a perpetual debt of gratitude. This is what Paul emphasizes in Romans chapter 8. And when we connect that to this passage here, the point is that there is an intimate connection between our debt of gratitude to God and our debt of the gospel to Greeks, to non-Greek speakers, to English speakers, to non-English speakers, to rich, to poor, to wise, to foolish, to all men. This is because the gospel is God's good news to all men. And so when you believe the gospel and you come under the gospel, 
you get caught up into the ministry of the gospel to the whole world. Part of Jesus' ministry to the world, when he came and suffered and died and rose and ascended, part of that ministry too was to ascend and then send the Holy Spirit upon his disciples whom he then sent out saying, you now are my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Part of the gospel message is that it conscripts its recipients into its own service. So to the extent that we serve for the sake of Jesus and his ministry to the world, we are servants not just to him, but to all men. Because Jesus is a servant to all men. As Jack reminded us in his prayer this morning. In verse 17, Paul says that the gospel is revealed, or the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. How does this happen? So first and foremost, of course, the righteousness of God is revealed. It shows up in history in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It shows up in the verdict of righteous that is put on Christ at his resurrection. It is revealed again as righteousness is applied in Christ to you through your justification. And so also, part of how God discloses or reveals his righteousness, not only in the past, but even now perpetually in the present, is through taking those whom he has made righteous and then putting their righteousness on display both in their lives as they reflect Christ and through their words as they put the message of this righteousness on their lips. If you have been saved by the gospel from your sin, part of who you are, as a matter of fact, is that you are a testimony to the revelation of God's righteousness. But did you know, and this is the question this morning, that because you just are a testimony, that you have a responsibility, an obligation to testify? And you are not Paul, I know. You are the local church. You are not apostles. Your task is not the unique historical task of bringing for the first time the gospel beyond the bounds of Israel and uniting Jew and Gentile through faith in Jesus Christ. But the task of the church after the apostles is to be a perpetual lampstand. To be an outpost of the gospel in a world that is blanketed under the darkness of sin and death. To carry on the apostolic message. Paul was called by God's grace to be an apostle. That's what he tells us in the opening verses to Romans. I was called by God's grace. Paul receiving God's grace gave him not just a new identity, but an identity with a calling to be an apostle. And the same kind of logic works with with us. People of God, if you didn't know it, You are in debt not only to God, but to your neighbors, even those neighbors on the other side of the world. The word debt 
or obligation, that financial metaphor that pops up in your head, it might cause a bit of a shock, right? But the point is not to make you think that you are required to pay back God as though he's counting the pennies, paying him back for for what he's done to you. That's nonsensical and impossible if for no other reason than for the infinite value of what he gave you. But the point is to remind you that the grace you have been given is not designed to fatten you with grace. The grace that you have been given is designed to return in thanksgiving and glory to God. And so also designed to overflow from your own fullness so that grace would go out to others as well, who in turn will offer thanksgiving and glory to God. There's something else interesting in our, in our obligation. This brings us to the next point. Look at verse 15. So, Paul says, because I'm obligated, so I'm eager. So somehow Paul's obligation leads him to be eager. <clears throat> this too might sound odd. We have to, again, reorient our logic around how the gospel works. But it's actually not all that unfamiliar of an idea, right? That an obligation or a requirement leads to you being happy to do it, right? If you are uh, blessed to be an employee with a passion that happens to align with the purpose of the company you work for or for your your boss and your employer, then that passion makes you eager to fulfill your duties at work. Or it is, it is the patriotism, the eager, passionate patriotism of a soldier that makes them eager to fulfill their duties. Now, no matter how, how menial they are, or even if they put their life at risk, or it is the, the inexpressible bond of love that parents have for their children, which makes them eager to fulfill their parental duties and obligations. It is very possible that when the, the readers of this letter in Rome would have, would have read the word eager, they would have heard echoes of what they had seen time and time again of, of public servants of the empire or, or of soldiers taking their solemn and public vows declaring that they are in fact eager and willing to serve Caesar. The word was often used in these sorts of contexts. When you ask yourself, are you eager? Am I eager for the gospel? Am I eager to share the gospel? Sometimes you will say to yourself, I don't really feel excited about sharing the gospel. Sometimes you will say to yourself, I'm afraid of the duty. But this idea of eagerness is not one of emotional fancy. It's the kind of eagerness that just will often be mixed with various levels of excitement and fear 
for other things. But the eagerness called for here and that Paul expresses of himself here is a readiness and a willingness to serve, to be eager, that flows out of a deep-seated conviction. Conviction. And this is exactly Paul's point. From Romans 1.16 to the end of chapter 11. Look at verse 16. It begins, for, or because, I'm eager to preach, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of it. Everything downhill from verse 16 and 17 is an explanation about these two verses, this two verses here that introduce the, the gospel. And, and everything after these verses is Paul expounding on the gospel so, so gloriously to explain just what it is that he's so convicted about that makes him eager. Paul is eager not only because then he has been conscripted, if you will, by the gospel into its service, but because he has a deep, profound conviction that the gospel is the power to save the world. What do you think makes for a shameless missionary? What do you think it takes for Paul to be the kind of missionary who proclaims the word despite, on many occasions, um, threats of physical harm? What about you? What would it take for those simple feelings of embarrassment or shame to dissipate when, for example, your unbelieving friends find out that you are, in fact, a Christian? Or that you go to church on Sunday? What about when you simply choose not to participate in something and your peers know, your boss knows, your extended family knows? It's because you're a Christian with some convictions that keep you from doing whatever they're up to. Is there a little bit of shame or embarrassment that crops up? What keeps you from your testimony being a bold testimony? Maybe if you were just a little bit more witty or winsome or well-read. But is Paul proud because he has the intellectual wherewithal to defend his gospel against skeptics? No, he is not. In fact, elsewhere, Paul admits that he maybe does not have intellectual stature that he would wish that he did. Is Paul proud because he is winsome enough to make the gospel sound intriguing and attractive even to those for whom the gospel is a challenge to their lifestyle? No, he is not. He is not a good public speaker, Paul says elsewhere. So is he proud that his public speaking has gained him fame, a reputation? I don't think so. In fact, it was typically not the kind of fame anyone would want. 
It included whips and court cases and, and prisons. Is he proud of the gospel because everyone else wishes they had thought of it first? No, it, it's folly to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. It's offensive to the modern idea of the autonomous self. The gospel puts up dividing walls between good and evil and refuses to celebrate the things that your neighbors love to celebrate. No, Paul was unashamed because his gospel put very straightforwardly with all of the profundity that lies right here on the surface that the gospel has the power, is the power, to save everyone in the world who believes. It wasn't anything to do with Paul that made him more or less ashamed of what he preached. It was a conviction about what God had done. When the fact that you are a believer comes under the spotlight, if if, if in that moment all we consider are our inabilities and weaknesses, if all we consider are all of the ways we won't communicate the gospel well, then we are missing the point. You are not a testimony to what you lack. You are a testimony to what God has done to you and for you despite of yourself. And that's the whole point. What it takes to be eager about the gospel is a conviction that the gospel, and not you, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, how is that? How is the gospel, which are, it's, it's good news, it's words, it's a, it's a report, How is it that these simple words that you can scrawl on a napkin, easy words that you can teach a child, how is it that the meager story is actually the very power of God to save? This is the next four. Verse 17, four in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is not simply, as some unbelievers might understand it, a particularly successful self-help strategy. It is not powerful because it is some form of of self-deception that helps us detach from the world. We do not pray to or worship uh, a crutch. The gospel is not a coping mechanism. The gospel is not just an idea. The significance of the gospel lies in the fact that it is good news. News meaning it is a report about an event that happened in the past. Of Christ coming, living a perfect life, taking on human flesh to live that life, dying and rising. Again, it is a report about the fact that God sent his son to die on behalf of his enemies. And then rose to give them new life. It is the act of God that you can boast in. Because the act of God carries the infinite and significant glory that all men have a sense is out there. But they can't find. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Get eager. 
about it. No matter how much hatred that you or the gospel receives, no matter how much hatred you see thrown at the church on social media or in other places, the fact of the matter is that the gospel is just exactly what every single person needs. Right? People try to go and uh, go to great lengths to find that power of salvation from their predicaments. People with a particular sense of their guilt will try any number of ways to assuage it. We could list so many, but perhaps the most frequent advice I've heard or you've heard that people get in in this kind of situation is that they just need to forgive themselves. They need to forgive themselves. But the spirit who convicts them will not be satisfied in a sort of repentance unto self. And they are still liable to pay for their guilt. It is only the justification of Jesus Christ that will save them from their guilt. They need Christ's forgiveness and they need Christ's righteousness. People are always trying to save themselves from what they don't like about themselves. Every generation offers its own gospel of self-improvement, right? For some, it was pursuing independence and security, establishing your own domain. For others, it is cultivating healthy habits for a happy life. What's on tap most frequently these days is something like self-care and self-construction. In these ways, you actually sanctify yourself to live in your own new creation of a life. But these are not means of self-fulfillment. They rather distort the God-glorifying image in which they were created. Only sanctification that Paul describes in Romans 6, the transformation of the Spirit can restore them and fulfill them to humanity as God intended it. People try to save themselves from the fact that they are marginalized, overlooked, have to fare unface, have to face unfair circumstances. They, they look uh, to get out of these things. They look to overcome their, their irrelevance by looking for fame or, or affirmation or trying to be worthy according to any number of, of worldly standards, right? Wealth, status symbols, vocational success, how their kids turn out, whether they've accomplished anything of lasting legacy. But even the best efforts made from chasing your own glory rather than God's will only end in destruction. These strategies won't work. Only the glorification that Paul speaks about in Romans, that's in Christ that's in the gospel will save people from their otherwise inevitable irrelevance. Every single unbeliever you know tries these things. And every one of them will fail. These are, they're broken strategies. They're lies leading to death. Every one of their deepest desires will go unfulfilled and they have no power to justify or or sanctify or to glorify 
themselves, people of God, you have, in fact, precisely what everybody is looking for, even if they call it folly. What is there to be ashamed of, except for the fact that we so often forget the preciousness of the treasure that we have? Look with me in verse 13. Paul tells them that he's been trying to make it to Rome, but he's been hindered. Why is that? If you uh, turn over the page in your bulletin, you'll also see a section printed there from Romans 15. Look there. Look at Romans 15, verse 22. Paul says, this is the reason why I've been hindered. In verses 19 to 21, there Paul is explaining that it was his ambition to proclaim Christ from Jerusalem and all the way around to to Illyricum, which is this, this stretch in southern Europe that's between Greece and Italy. It's the outermost reaches before Italy and Rome that, that Paul has gone. In verse 20, Paul says, the reason he's been delayed is for no other reason than he's been fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ. In other places, we read that Paul is delayed or hindered, and he takes it as, as Satan's hindrance on his ministry. Here, he's, he's talking about the constraints of the ministry itself. Notice carefully that there in verse 20 that the gospel of Christ has a ministry. It is the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ has a mission. In verse 20, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. So, so again, we're back in the letter portion of the letter, and, and Paul defines his ambition, his passion, his obligation, his eagerness around the mission of Jesus Christ into which Paul has been caught up. Specifically, Paul had the apostolic task of of taking the gospel, he says here, where it has never been. That's what he's been up to. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, because he's covered all the regions between Jerusalem up to Italy, and he says, since I have longed for many years to come to you, it's always been his intention from the start to go out this far, I hope to see you. He goes on to mention that he hopes to continue on by way of them to Spain. So this is subtle, but I think it's interesting and and important. Isn't Rome the center of the world? Isn't Rome the epicenter of of culture? Isn't Rome where ideals and and thoughts and values go out from? Isn't, Isn't this the the reign of the greatest kingdom on earth? Isn't Rome the place of culture creation? (laughs) The way that Paul writes, it's almost as if he's trying to communicate that set next to the gospel, set next to the mission of the gospel, Rome is not all that important. Rome is a pit stop to Spain. Not even the cultural, gravitational pull of Rome can exert any force on the trajectory of the gospel. 
It is the hallmark of God's grace that it is given despite our unworthiness. But so also the spread of that gospel has nothing to do with our abilities or our status or our worthiness. Why has God revealed his righteousness to you? Is it because God realized it would be a good idea to have you on his team? Is it because he knows how well-connected you are, or well-liked, or well-established? You have a lot of influence? You're a leader among your peers? No. May we never have the attitude that it just makes sense that we're the ones sitting here on Sunday morning. It makes no sense. May we never presume there is a reason in us for the fact, a reason that accounts for the fact that that we walk through these doors on Sunday morning while others are just walking by. There is nothing in us that is fitting or worthy for God to save. And there is nothing but sheer grace. It is for His glory. It's not for your glory. God saved you for himself. We know this, people of God. We confess this. We hear this preached, and we should learn to become more intimately familiar with it. But do we realize not only that our reception of the gospel, but also the spread of the gospel has nothing to do with our abilities and status, position, No, the mission of the gospel is not about you and does not depend on you. So then why, and here is the critical question to understand our text, the book of Romans this morning. Why does Paul write you this letter? What is the purpose of God having, having used this theological powerhouse of a book to ground and inspire the great solas of the Reformation, sola fide, sola gratia. When you read it, what is the purpose of its rousing in you, that that confidence in your justification, the boast you have in the hope of the glory of God? What is the purpose of it in rousing the expectation of your glorification? chapter 8, or or the knowledge that since God has called you and justify you, he he will also glorify you. This this knowing and expectation that all things will will work out for your good. What is is the purpose of chapter 6? Offering you freedom from your sin for you to revel in freedom that otherwise keeps you. Freedom from the sin that otherwise keeps you in, in bondage and slavery. It is no accident that we love Romans. Paul wrote it so that you would love it. He writes this letter with this explosive, magnanimous demonstration of the gospel in order to explain just why he was eager. 
in order for the Romans to get eager and to launch him to Spain and why you should get eager about proclaiming the gospel, the confidence and knowledge and freedom and expectation and hope that the theology of Romans communicates to you is yes, there to comfort you in affliction. And, and, and yes, it is there to answer your doubts. And yes, it is there so that you would know and love the faithfulness of God. But as it does these things, it supports the reason for why Paul wrote this letter. To make the Romans, to make you more deeply convicted of the fact that the gospel, not you, is the power of salvation for the world. So that you might know you are obligated, so that you might become eager and convicted about the gospel message and proud to participate in the mission of the gospel of Christ and the spreading of the news of Christ's fame and his glory, so that more and more people would turn and give glory and thanksgiving to God. God has made you a part of the mission of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God to save the world. Get eager. Lord, our good Good Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your precious sacrifice. We thank you for this good news. We pray, Lord, that you would seal it and drive it deeply down within our hearts. Make us eager to share this news with one another, with our children, with the whole world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.